morning, Southbridge. I'm glad you're here. And uh, thank you, guests, for braving the storm. It's going to be 52 today. But thank you for coming out and uh, being at church today. If you're a guest, if you would, and your worship program is a connection card, uh, fill that out. Take it out the first time guest kiosk. Uh, there is a heater out there, so you can stand by that and uh, talk to the person out there and turn that card in, and we'll give you a gift. And so if you would do that, that's waiting for you. And uh, we're glad that you're here. And for those of you who are a regular part of our church, just want to give you a little brief update, too, uh, some family stuff that's going on. You may remember back in November, we launched a, a program, an initiative, a campaign, whatever phrase you like best for that, um, called the Whatever It Takes Campaign. And we were building our first building as a church, and a lot of stuff that's been happening since then has been kind of behind the scenes. You, you don't see, you know, dirt's not moving or any of those kinds of things. And uh, just recently, we submitted to uh, the banks, and there was about 30 of them. I don't remember if it was 28, 32, but about 30 banks um, that we submitted what's called our request for proposal. And that means uh, we put our numbers together. Our accountants work through a bunch of that stuff. We use an outside accounting firm, so they submit, put a bunch of stuff together and kind of package it all and stories and who we are and all that kind of stuff uh, put together, submitted to the banks, and they're going to be looking at that over the next 30 days or so. And so the next 30 days are crucial in our church. And I just want to ask you, if you're a regular part of this church, please be praying. And uh, we'll know more information after that, have a better idea of where we're at with the project and groundbreaking time frames, all those other kinds of stuff that I'm sure everybody wants to know. We don't know. And so uh, when we get some of that information back, we'll have a better gauge of that, we'll give you more information as it becomes uh, available, and probably some meetings or different kind of stuff so that we can talk through some of these things as a family. Um, but right now, the next 30 days are really crucial. And so if you'd be praying about these things over the next 30 days, that would be uh, just a huge blessing to our church. Just pray. Pray that God would direct us and lead us in the way that he wants us to go and, and how this would happen, that his favor would be on it, that it would be clear, uh, that he's the one that's working um, through the process. And so we just want to, we don't want to make a decision just thinking we know the best thing to do, so we want to make it clear that he's leading us. And so if you just pray along those lines, um, that would be great. So please do that. And then also, um, as a church, we've been going through the book of Acts together. And so we've been in the book of Acts since the beginning of the year, and we're already to chapter 3. There are 28 of these chapters, just so you know. Uh, so we'll probably be in Acts for most of this year. Uh, but if you haven't been with us, you can catch up online and see some of those different things. And uh, we're going to dive into chapter 3 today. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and start turning there or your app or whatever it is. And I'm going to pray for us as we open up the Scriptures together. Let me pray. Father, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, with other believers. I pray for there, <clears throat> there might be some that here that aren't believers today too. And uh, for whatever reason, decided to come. And I pray that you'd bring them into a relationship with your son Jesus, that they would, as we just sang the song, they would see the light. They would see what it is that you offer, your forgiveness, your grace, um, your salvation. And I pray that they would want that and receive that today. And Father, for those of us who are believers, I pray you'd strengthen us in our relationship with you. You'd encourage us. You'd challenge us. God, that we'd just be more like you, that we would have an encounter with you that as a result of looking at what you have to say in the scriptures, that we'd be changed and that you would change our minds, you'd change our hearts, you'd change us in whatever way it is you desire to change us. And I pray that you would bind the enemy from this place as we open up the scriptures. I'm sure he'd love nothing more than to distract us from the things that you want us to know. And I pray that you wouldn't allow that to happen, that you give us a time of really refuge in your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, last week we left off in Acts chapter 3. You can turn there if you want to, in Acts chapter 3. And uh, what was happening when we got to this passage of Scripture was we had just come off of the most climactic and dramatic passage of Scripture in the book of Acts where the church got started. There were 3,000 people that came to the realization that every person who's a genuine follower of Jesus has to come to. And so hopefully you've come to this place in your life. You come to the place where you realize what I'm doing isn't working. I'm living life my way, I'm doing my thing, and that can be outright rebellion, that can be covered in moralism, it can be all kinds of different ways that we package that, but we're living lives our way, doing what we think is best, and you've got to come to the realization where you realize that's not working, and you need a fresh start, and you need God's grace, 
And because of your sin, even if it's moralized sin, because of your sin, there's punishment. You need protection from that punishment. And it only comes through the death of Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross. But how do you receive it? Well, Peter told people how they could have a fresh start. He said, repent. You're going your own way? Stop. Turn to God. Don't go back to that stuff. Repent. And that day, 3,000 people repented. They stopped. They turned to God. And they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. These were Jewish people. They were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They were showing their commitment, their identification with Jesus. And that day the church started. And these people end up being world-changing Christians. And the reason why is because their lives are being so transformed by Jesus Christ. We saw last week in verse 43 that everyone was in awe of them. And that was everyone, believers, non-believers. Everybody had a sense of God's presence when they were around these people. And that's what that word awe means. They sensed God from them. And we talked about last week as a church how many times as American believers we settle for something that's far more tame than what the New Testament talks about Christianity being. We've kind of Americanized Christianity. And we'll take things from society or whatever and we'll kind of Christianize them and we think that makes it Christian and that's kind of what we do with a lot of our lives. And so what we do is we're we're moral because we go to church and we learn good lessons and we know stuff about Jesus. We hear what he says. We like what he says. Um, we might be better, you know, being a, a spouse or, or better with our families or, or have a better kind of life in general, or maybe our finances are better, and we kind of get some of the benefits, the residual effects of Christianity, but we don't experience the genuine transformation. And we miss what God desires for us. God desires for you such radical transformation in your life that when people come into contact with you, they can sense God in your life. And that's what happened with these believers. And if we miss that and we just grab some of the principles, we'll miss the essence of what's happening here, that God was so radically transforming these believers. But how was that happening? Because it doesn't just happen. And we saw what happened with these believers was they were devoted. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to some certain things. They devoted themselves to encountering God on a regular basis through the scriptures, through prayer, which is like the lifeline of the believer, through the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper. Lord willing, we're going to celebrate next week. If we have enough volunteers to hand out the elements, hint, hint. Um, but we'll, we'll do that. It's something we do. We focus on the gospel. So you encounter God on a regular basis. And so we want to encounter God regularly. They devoted themselves to that. They devoted themselves to one another, the fellowship, in verse 42 it said. And then the passage really unpacks through the rest of the verses in 42 through 46, what the fellowship looked like and how they cared for one another. And we do a great job as that as a church. We really got cut off because we ran out of time last week in verse 47, though. And the third thing they were devoted to was that they were devoted to engaging their world for Christ. We saw in verse 47, the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And we just talked about God was so transforming them and changing them. People were sensing God's presence in their lives, and they were giving an answer for the hope that they had. But what does that really look like? And we really, that's all we said about it. We cut it off. Well, the great news is that chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 that we're going to look at, it's like Luke zooms in and gives us a picture. How are they doing this? How was the Lord adding to their number daily? What was it looking like for them to be devoted to engaging the world for Christ? And I asked you a question last week, just what are you devoted to? I asked you the same question this week. What are you devoted to? Because what you're devoted to today will determine where you end up tomorrow. So what are you devoted to? Where does your attention go? Where does your affections go? Where does your money go? Where does your time go? And are you devoted to engaging your world for Christ? Because the the kind of Christians that were having an eternal impact, that were difference makers, that's what they were devoted to. Devoted to one another, yes. Devoted to encountering God, yes. And devoted to engaging the world for Christ. So we're going to talk about that as we see a picture of what it looks like in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It'll be up on the screen, but if you have a Bible or or whatever, you can turn there and see that if you're not already there. It says there in chapter 3, verse 1, one day, and remember on a daily basis they did this. 
verse 43 told us that they were doing wonders and miracles as the apostles. And verse 46 told us that every day they were going to meet at the temple. And verse 47 said the Lord was adding their number daily. And it says here, one of those days, one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon, like they did every other day. They do this all the time. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day. Oh, so this was his daily routine too. So they always went to the temple every day, and every day this man came to the temple, and he was put there, though, to beg for those that were going into the temple courts. When Peter saw him and John saw him about to enter, they asked, or when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention and expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. That was probably disappointing at that moment. But what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Verse 7. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate because he was there every day. The same guy used to sit at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. We've got an incredible miracle that's taking place here. This guy's not able to walk from birth. He's not able to walk. And then he's given the ability to walk. But so much more than that's happening here. Think about just the fact that we know that Peter and John... They go into the temple on a daily basis. Verse 46 said, you know, all the believers, they would get their small, they'd meet in homes and small groups, but they'd go to the temple every day. Thousands of them. There's 3,120 of them that we know of at this point. Every day they're going to the temple. It's their daily routine, verse 46. And then in chapter 3, in verse 2, we see that every day this same man comes to the temple gate. And sometimes we don't think about it. There are multiple days that are happening here. How many times do they see each other? It might have been 100 times. They've seen each other, but now all of a sudden Peter and John notice this man. There's a difference between seeing something and noticing something. And I'll tell you, the easiest illustration for me is at my house, when I want to get a snack or something to eat, and I'll go to the pantry or the refrigerator, and I'll say, Shanna, you know, I'm going to get some cheese. And I'll open up the refrigerator, and I'll look into the refrigerator, and I am very confident there is no cheese in the refrigerator. And I'll turn, I'll be like, there isn't any. We need, we need to go to the store. We don't have any cheese. I love cheese. And, she, and she'll come over, and she'll grab the cheese that was in front of my face that was orange and said cheese on it, and she'll, here's the cheese. My eyes work, like my brain works most of the time. It's like there's some broken synapse there. And I just, I saw it, but didn't notice it. And I don't think I'm the only one that does that. So I'm going to ask you a few questions, and you can just kind of internalize whether or not you do this or not. Every one of us, probably on a, a daily basis, whether you, you work at a building, or you live in an apartment, or you live in a house, you walk into a building. For those of you who walk up steps, how many steps do you walk up every day when you go into those places? Do you know? If it's more than a couple, I bet most of you are like, well, is there four? Is there five? Like, how many steps are there? What is the, you see it every day. But do you notice? Husband's going to put you on the spot. You probably see your wife getting ready every day. Does she do her makeup first or does she do her hair first? Wives' heads are turning. Yeah, what do I do? You know, does she do her makeup first or her hair first? Does she do her hair first or does she do her makeup first? Which one is it? Well, wives, before there's too much pressure on your husband, let me just say, ask you this. He shaves his face probably every day too, right? Does he start on the right side or the left side? Or does he start down low or does he start up high or... Do you know? You probably see these things every day, but do you notice them? How many traffic lights do you go by on your way to church? You drive through them. You just did it. Why are you having to think through the intersections? You've seen this stuff, but do you notice this stuff? And maybe you're single and you're thinking, well, you picked on the husbands, you picked on the wives. How many of you have been through your own routine and you didn't even realize what you did? 
You're re- it's like, how did I end up being ready? I just did stuff. Like, what happened? My teeth are brushed. My face is shaved. Like, I don't even know. It's just, we see stuff. We don't even notice. There's one survey that I read this week. And they surveyed these people. There's some psychologists came to an office building. There were 54 employees in this office building. Some of them had worked at this building for several years. They asked them one question. Do you know where the fire extinguisher is? Think about a fire extinguisher. You know, the big red thing that could save your life that you walk by every day? <laughs> 75% of the people in the building couldn't tell you where the fire extinguisher was at. But you know what I bet happened after they took the survey? Is now they noticed this big red thing that was stuck to the wall. And now they probably saw it different every time they saw it after that because once you notice something, it changes the way you look at it. Let me just illustrate that for a moment. I'm going to pop up some logos on the screen, logos you've probably seen before, maybe hundreds of times before. One of them is Federal Express. We'll pop that up. And you've probably seen this logo before. Have you ever noticed the arrow in this logo before? Because they are shipping and packaging company. But there's an arrow here. We'll show it to you. Now that you've noticed it, you'll probably never look at that logo again the same. Or what about this logo? It's a popular company, Amazon, Amazon Amazon.com. You've probably seen this arrow before. It's pretty blatant and pretty obvious. This is a crazy company. They sell all kinds of stuff. Whatever you'd want to buy online, you can probably buy it from them. They sell everything from books, instructions, actual tools. You can buy all kinds of, not tools because I know, but it's on there. Like there's all kinds of stuff there. Do you ever notice the arrow points from A to Z? As if to say that we sell everything from A to Z. Or what about, I love Mexican food, and I didn't notice this until I, st- I saw this online this week. Uh, somebody illustrated this for me. Tostitos, a great logo here. You notice the salsa above the eye is kind of obvious. What I didn't realize is they're having a party on the outside of the bag and a party on the inside of the bag. Look at these teas. They're eating the salsa. Who knew? But once you notice it, it changes the way you look at it. And what happens with Peter and John is they're coming into the temple here. They've seen this guy before. The Spirit prompts their heart to notice this man. And what we see here are two men that pre-Pentecost, meaning before they had the Spirit of God, before the Spirit had come upon them in the way that it did, pre-Pentecost, you got two guys that were very focused on themselves. In fact, even after they came to follow Christ, it was really all about them. Whatever happened to Jesus, how does it affect them? And we left moms, and we left houses, and we left family, and we left all that stuff. And what about us? And even if everybody else deserts you, I won't. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. And they argue about who's the greatest. And they have all those interactions. But what we see here is they're being so transformed that now they notice other people. And what's going to happen is if if we're ever going to be people that are devoted to engaging our world for Christ, impact Christians, actually make a difference, that like these people turn the world upside down, we must, we must notice the needs around us. That's our first point. We must notice, not just see them, not just be aware of them because they tell you some stats or tell you an opportunity or whatever. We've got to notice the needs that are around us. Just think about all the needs that you'll come into contact with today. At church, I mean, you bump into hundreds of people. We bump shoulders, say hi, we shook hands before the service started, maybe shake hands with people, exchange smiles. You'll see stuff, maybe you'll hear prayer requests, maybe you'll be serving together in your groups, whatever, and all kinds of things are going on in people's lives. All kinds of needs. Marriages hanging on by a thread, physical needs that are happening, spiritual needs that are taking place, sins that need to be forgiven, broken relationships, all kinds of pain and hurt, people carrying guilt, lots of stuff will you notice. And not just the people that you bump shoulders with here. We talked about that mostly last week. What about when you leave here and you think about all the people you come into contact with, the hundreds if not thousands of people that you'll bump shoulders with between our meeting now and our meeting here next week? At the coffee shop, when you go to the post office, you ship a package with Federal Express. What about the person behind the counter? 
They've got needs. Do you even notice them? Or are they just there to provide a service to you? See, if we're going to be impact Christians, engage our world for Christ, we're going to be devoted to that. We must notice the needs around us. And that's what happens with Peter and John here. Peter and John, interesting guys, they're buddies, even before they come to follow Jesus. They were in a fishing business together. I don't imagine the way that they lived their lives then is they competed with one another, you know, who tied the best knot, who had the best net, who has the best boat, who caught the most fish, because that's the way they live their lives even after they become Christians. After they come to follow Jesus, they're still arguing about who's the greatest. But not here. Here you see some men that have been transformed, and here Luke glances in to one of their daily lives. The first couple words in, verse, in chapter 3 and verse 1 are really interesting. It just says, one day, it's like any other day. This isn't a special festival. This isn't some kind of religious gathering that's unique. This is one day of any other day. This isn't a church program. They're not going to the temple this day looking for crippled people they can share the gospel with. They're just living their lives. Where they live, they move, they have their being, like where you work and where you go to get coffee and where you go to run errands and through your neighborhood when you're bumping into people. It's that kind of day for them. It's just a normal day. The church didn't program this day which doesn't mean it's wrong for the church to program outreach. We do it here as a church. We've got our engage groups, which when we restructured our, our group system this past fall, we introduced engage groups, which go into our community specifically, trying to meet needs for people to share the gospel with them. Because when you meet some of those needs, people become more receptive to the gospel. And so we've got those, and you can go to the kiosk if you want more information on those. We do different stuff throughout the year, restaurant outreach. We'll do stuff with the school. Uh, we did a reclaim run for orphans uh, this past year. One of the most popular ones that, that has the most people get involved in is Southbridge Serves once or twice a year. We'll just try to serve our community, firemen, different folks that are in our community in lots of ways. Let me share something with you from the perspective of the church. We don't necessarily think that by doing those things, our whole city is going to be transformed. We do it once or twice a year. I mean, it's just not, it doesn't make sense that that would happen. You know what we hope happens? As trying to do, live out Ephesians chapter 4, the work of an apostle, an evangelist, a pastor, and teacher, is that we equip the body to do works of service, that you'll go and do these things, whether it's serving the firemen or teachers or doing different stuff, and it will click. I don't need a church program for this. This is easy. When you're kind to people, they become more receptive to the love of Christ. Wow. And then on a daily basis, as you're jogging through your neighborhood, you notice the needs of somebody who's walking their dog. You talk to your neighbors. You listen to them. You notice when people, when you listen to them, they become so much more receptive. You start listening. You start seeing different stuff that's happening in different people's lives when you go to the coffee shop, when you're at work with your coworkers. And that's the kind of thing that's happening here with Peter and John. This isn't a program. This is their daily lives. This is how they live. And they're devoted to encountering God, so that's been happening in their lives already. They're caring for one another, but then as they're coming to the temple, they're going up to the temple, it says here, at the time of prayer, which is an interesting statement in the Bible as a whole. Every time you see people going to the temple, just notice this. They're always going up. It doesn't matter if they're traveling from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. It doesn't matter. They're always going up. And that's interesting because it's a reverential statement that they're going to meet with God. And so they're doing something else. They're on their way for prayer. And the scene is that they're going at 3 o'clock. There were three times to pray for Jews to go to the temple every day. Three times. 3 o'clock was the most popular time because it was also a time of sacrifice. So there are thousands upon thousands of people coming to the temple at this point. There are lots of other beggars that are there too. It's 3 o'clock in the day. It's probably a sunny day. And it says exactly where this is taking place in the temple in verse 2. Look at verse 2. It says, as they're going in, now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple court. So they're at this temple gate called Beautiful, which every gate in the temple was beautiful, by the way. Josephus, a Jewish historian, tells us there were ten gates to go into the sanctuary. 
nine of the ten gates were covered with gold and silver kind of plating over top of them. But there was one gate that wasn't covered with gold and silver that was actually much more valuable than all those gates. It was covered with bronze. And when I hear that, I think, well, that's not the most precious metal. But then, then as you read, you start to learn that it was the most precious kind of bronze that they had. It was called Corinthian bronze, which I'm pretty confident you have to pronounce Corinthian. It was Corinthian bronze. It's very expensive, so that makes it sound more expensive, right? So there's exquisite bronze that's all over this gate. And just so you know, it wasn't a gate like two dudes who just kind of walked, they were just walking through, Peter and John. This was huge. Josephus tells us that it took 20 men to close this gate because it was so thick and heavy. It was between 70 and 75 feet tall, about 50 or 60 feet wide, and covered in this bronze. It was a picture of power and wealth. It's 3 o'clock. There are thousands of people coming in. The sun's shining on this bronze gate. That's the palette that God paints this story on. That's what's happening here as you picture the scene. And then what takes place? The story is there's this man. Talk about a study of contrasts. In poverty and crippled. The reason why he doesn't go through the gate is because you're not allowed He's defective, is their belief system, so he's not allowed to go into the sanctuary. And so instead he comes to the gate and he begs, and look at what's happening. He's being carried as the man's been crippled from birth. And he's being carried by his friends. The fact that he's crippled from birth means he doesn't know what it's like to walk ever. It wasn't just that he was a little kid, you know, somebody dropped him, he broke his ankles, never could walk again because he had bad medical care, and you feel bad for that. That wasn't it. He's never walked into the arms of his parents. He's never jumped before. You know, you think about kids, you give them news, good news you're like hey we're gonna have candy after dinner yeah you know they start jumping just like a natural response this guy doesn't know what that's like this guy's never worked a day in his life because you weren't able to in this culture his only option was to beg and to go to the temple gate and beg was one of the best places you could go because judaism taught that if you gave people poor people money or crippled people money that was meritorious before god that you got credit in heaven for doing that that was the jewish belief system and so then they sit out there at the most popular time of day and so this guy comes and he's being carried who's carrying him we read later in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, verse 22, that this guy's 40 years old. His parents probably aren't carrying him because they're too old now. So who's carrying this grown man to this gate? Probably his friends. You know what his friends are? Other people that are considered unclean that are not able to go into the temple. Probably other beggars. And who would just decide to carry this guy? It's going to take away from their income. Well, it's probably guys who need to carry this guy, so they need him. What does he have? He has eyes. He's probably got blind guys carrying him to the temple. And he's telling them where to step, and they're using their legs, and they're working together in this process. It's a picture of hopelessness and helplessness and poverty contrasted with this picture of power and wealth. And all the wealthy and clean religious worshipers are coming by. Some of them are flipping them a coin. He's calling out, it says in verse 3, repeatedly he's yelling. That's the tense in the, in the Greek. Is that He just kept saying, money, silver, and gold, alms. Give me the alms, alms. Anybody want to give alms? Hey, you, you want to give alms? Money, silver, gold. That's what he did every day. This day, he's yelling it out. This day, just like every other day. And Peter and John are going into the temple, just like every other day. They've probably seen this guy before. But today, they notice him. Look at verse 4 and 5. In verse 4, it says, Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us, which I think is interesting. If you'd stop and you look straight at somebody who's sitting on the ground, that they wouldn't already be looking at you. You'd have to say, hey, look at me. Maybe it's because he's been rejected so many times he just doesn't make eye contact with people. Maybe insecurity. I don't know what it is. But Peter looks at him and it's as if Peter's saying, look, I notice you. I want you to notice that I notice you. Look at me. And he starts to interact with this guy. But what we're seeing here with Peter and John is transformation. Because these are guys that typically this wouldn't be their way. This wouldn't be their MO. This wouldn't be their mode of operation. This wouldn't be how they would do things. 
Because what we see is throughout their lives, even after they come to the place of following Christ, that their world revolves around them. Isn't that true for so many of us? That we're really thinking about, what, what am I going to get out of this? What, what, following Jesus is benefit me. And I go to church today, I hope I get something. You know, many commentators believe the very fact that they're going to the temple shows their evangelistic mentality because they want to go where there are a bunch of other Jews so they can share Christ with them. Not just go there for their own benefit. And they already have their home gatherings that they can get their own personal edification from, but they're going where there's a lot of people because there's a lot of needs where there's a lot of people. And how many people come to church thinking who they can reach? That was their mentality. That was their thought process. But that isn't how it's always been. Because you go back through their lives, you see Peter and John are buddies all throughout Scripture. And, And you see them before they knew Jesus, they were fishing partners. Probably competed with each other. We don't know for sure. But after they knew Jesus, we know they did. They argued about who's the greatest, talked about different stuff. If everybody else denies you, I won't. Peter's saying, you know, throws his buddy John under the bus. They're two, you know, three of the guys are really close with Jesus. There's 12 total. He's got his three in his inner cir- circle, Peter, James, and John. You see Peter and John together all the time. And when Jesus, they get word that uh, Jesus has been resurrected from the tomb, the women come back and give him, two guys go run into the tomb. It's Peter and John. John's so humble, he tells us he's the one who won the race. The one who Jesus loved, is who he refers to himself as in the scriptures, by the way. And he says, the one who Jesus loved ran. And then Peter showed up. <laughs> and you see them, even after they've been following Jesus for years, they're continuing to think about themselves. And there's this one illustration of it that Shannon and I were talking about last night, because we were talking about comparison and how you compare yourselves to other people. And when we compare ourselves to other people, we are looking at other people. But we're really thinking about us. And it just shows how we are such the center of our universe. And what happens in John chapter 21 is interesting. It's comparison kills. And it is so illustrated with this situation with Peter and John. Where what happens is after Peter's restored from his denials, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Yeah, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Come here, Peter. Go on a walk together. And they go on a walk. And they're walking down the beach. And Jesus starts to tell Peter what's going to happen in his life. Wouldn't that be great? And Jesus started telling him. He says, Peter, here's the deal. Um, there was a time in your life where you went where you wanted to go and you did what you wanted to do and you dressed yourself. There's going to come a time in your life where you're going to go where you don't want to go and people are going to stretch out your arms and you're not going to do what you want to do. In other words, he was telling him, you're going to be martyred, Peter. Peter gets it. And it says in the text that then he glances over his shoulder and he sees that John was following them, the one that Jesus loves. He's right back there. And uh, he turns over and looks and he says, well, what about him? What's going to happen in his life? Let me tell you why Peter was asking. It wasn't because he was thinking, I sure hope that doesn't happen to him. It's because Peter was thinking about himself. And do you know what Jesus says back to him? It's real interesting. John chapter 21, verse 22. I want you to think I'm making this stuff up. Look what it says. Jesus answered, and it doesn't say this is what he wants. He says, if I want him to remain alive until I return to you, what's that to you? You don't worry about him. And what would we most naturally say back to Peter at that moment? You just worry about you. You just worry about what God wants to do in your life. That's not what the text says. Look at what it says. You must follow me. Don't, don't, I'm not even telling you to think about you. I'm telling you to get your eyes off yourself and look at me. See, we talk about noticing needs in other people's lives. If we're going to notice needs in other people's lives, it doesn't even mean we look at them. Because first what has to happen is a transformation in us. Where Jesus is now the center. Where he's the star of the story. We've got a role as to point people to him. What we oftentimes function as is if we're the center of the story. Max Lucado writes a great book. It's appropriately titled, by the way, if you want to find it. It's Not About Me is the title of it. And he starts off in the very first several pages. He tells a story of Copernicus. If you know who Copernicus is, he's the guy who taught us that the earth wasn't the center of the solar system. 
And he says what ended up happening was there was a time in human history where uh, you could just grab your son, you know, if you're a father, and pull him in and go, see all those stars and planets? They all rotate around us. (laughs) And then Copernicus started to ask questions that were real annoying to everybody. Like, why do the seasons change? (laughs) Wouldn't that be an interesting question for us? Why is it 60 one day and the next day it snows? Like, what's happening here? Why do the seasons change? And why are there different stars in the sky during the day than there are during at night? Why is that? And why is it that uh, we talk about the earth and the way that it's shaped, uh, that no boats float off the edge? Like, how far can you sail your boat and then not just fall off the edge of the earth? And what happened metaphorically was that Copernicus came up to humanity, tapped him on the shoulder, and said, um, we're not the center of the solar system. Do you see that big thing in the sky? It's called the sun. That's the center. And everything revolves around that. Now, they didn't like that, and it took them over 50 years to accept that. But that's essentially what happens in the life of Peter and John. As the God taps them on the shoulder, shakes them off center, and says, you're not the center of the universe, but my son is. And everything really revolves around him. And, and when your life is doing what you've been designed to do, you're pointing people to him. But... What happens when you do that, it's so interesting, is that your eyes not only come off yourself and onto him, is you notice the needs of others. And so do you notice others' needs? Now, do you see them or aware of them? Do you notice them? Because they're all over. I'll just share a few with you, some global stats for you. I've shared stats with you before. I'm trying not to share any redundant ones. I know you already know stuff like there's, you know, half the world lives on less than $2 a day. and all. I'm not going to share all that. Listen to these things, though. Every year, approximately 1 million kids enter the prostitution industry. That's people under 17, 17 and under. One million of them every year enter prostitution. 35,000 children die every day, so it's in every year, every day, because they lack basic nutrition and sanitation. Can you imagine how we would respond as a church if a child and our and bridge kids died because they didn't have proper nutrition? Every day worldwide, 35,000 die. 500 million people are hungry. In our world, 500 million other people, so these are people that have, they are able to feed themselves, but they're so poor, they get too little food to be fully productive. So they're surviving. They're not going to show up on the stats of people that are dying, but there's another 500 million of them that can't be fully productive because their nutrition is so poor. 47 million people are refugees. They're displaced around the world, some of them here in the triangle. 47 million. Here's some evangelistic stats. 3.1 billion people. And 95% of all unreached people, they live in the same spot in the world, 95% of all unreached groups are located in an area of the world called the 1040 window. That's a spot between West Africa and China. Of those in the 1040 window, two-thirds of them, that's two billion people, have never heard of Jesus, at least not a Savior. And those are global, and that can be overwhelming, so I'm going to make it a little bit smaller. Here's some local stats. Uh, just in Raleigh, about 700 children. That's, so this isn't the triangle. This is just Raleigh. Just in Raleigh, about 700 children experience homelessness in a year. It's in our city. Every night, 11,000 people, or 1,100 people, I'm sorry, in Wake County have nowhere to sleep. It was kind of cold last night. There are over 80 brothels in the triangle. So prostitution and sexual addiction is rampant. Not just in Thailand and Indonesia. Here. 80 brothels in our city. One of our ministries, Hope Reigns, I asked them, uh, for some stats and some of the people that they help, and they specifically help with uh, hurting children. And Kim Sherratt, who's the leader of that ministry, emailed me back and said, we don't have exact stats, but I'm going to tell you this. We don't do any marketing. We don't do any advertising. And we have a wait list full of children that have these experiences. They've been physically, emotionally, and sexually abused, 
They suffer from illnesses like cancer, trauma, divorce. They've had experience of death of a parent. They have post-traumatic stress disorder. They're high-risk children. They come from group homes where they think that we're going to get in trouble. There's a waiting list for them because there's so many needs in our community. Marriages, they look great on the outside. No signs of God. No intimacy other than being here at church on Sunday morning. God's not a part of their marriage. It doesn't tap into, and I've shared with you before, pornographic stats and all that stuff. I think they're all too low because it says, you know, like 70% of men intentionally look at pornography in a, in a week time period, 40% of women. Um, because that doesn't reveal to us the lust in our hearts. That only tells us a symptom. That doesn't show us really the need. How many people are lusting after entertainment as an escape? How many people are lusting after more material possessions as some kind of quoting or some kind of a coding of the problems and the pain in their life? How many people are lusting after using a coworker to their own objectification, for their own gratification? This just talks about people looking stuff up on the computer. So there are needs everywhere. There are all kinds of needs. And what can happen is when you start to become aware of them, and that's how you notice them, but you start to become aware of them, it can become overwhelming. I've experienced this before. Some things start to become obvious to me, and you see it, and, and you start to know that it's happening, and you start to identify it in other people, and, and it's just like, I don't even want to know this. I've had it before where Shannon's come to tell me, I was like, I don't even want to know a story. Like, don't even tell me what's happening, because what I want to do is just put my head in the sand and pretend it's not reality. And it's like, what many of us want to do. We want to just go to our house, go into our subdivisions, close the door, turn on the TV, eat our meal, whatever we do, and just kind of pretend like this stuff isn't happening around us. I don't change it. The problem is it's so overwhelming. We think, what can I do? I'm just like one guy in North Carolina. What am I going to do? And I want to point something out about this passage. Is that Peter and John only heal one beggar this day. They make a difference in one life. There are probably hundreds of beggars at the gate called Beautiful. This place of wealth and religion where people get credit from God by giving to poor people. There are probably hundreds of them there. They help one guy. Can you make a difference in one life? One. We talked about this when we launched 10X. You know, who's your one? Care for your one, pray for your one, share with your one, love your one. Do you know what happened with some people in our church is they started to look at people different. I had one guy who told me he'd been a Christian for 30 years, never led anybody to Jesus. That's a sad stat. 30 years, and, and to his knowledge, never led anyone to Christ. And maybe you identify with that. I'm sorry. But then he talked about, we started talking about these things. He started to look at people differently. He started to pray about and trying to figure out who should be his one. Who should be, should it be a, a co-worker or should it be a relative? Like who should be the person they're trying to really intentionally demonstrate the love of Christ to? And he started having a spiritual conversation with one of his co-workers. And he found out from his co-worker that three and a half years ago, he started to intensely investigate becoming a part of a cult. And he's been investigating it since. He said the really disheartening thing for him was that he'd known the guy for more than three and a half years. As so he started to think about the what ifs and if I had just and all that and all the guilt that comes with all that stuff. And he's worked through a bunch of that stuff. But here's the point. Now he's noticing. Now he cares. Now he's praying for this guy. Now he's trying to share Christ with this guy. He gives me updates how the conversations are going, what's happening. And he's got some people that really know about that cult and all that kind of stuff. Because now he notices the need. And what's happening is he's being transformed to become more like his Savior, Jesus Christ. Think about what it was like to be Jesus. Everywhere he went, he noticed needs. It's like a theme throughout the gospel. Matthew chapter 14, right before the feeding of the 5,000, there's, there's this little verse that we sometimes miss. Verse 14, forget the food thing. Look what happens. It says, when Jesus landed, he saw the, the large crowd. He had compassion on them. It means he was moved in his spirit for these people. And he healed their sick. And he fed people. And he taught his disciples. And he did all kinds of things through the process. But he looked at them. He saw the needs. 
Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. I quoted, paraphrased it for you last week. It says, when, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He comes out of the temple teaching because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved in his spirit. He sees people that are hurting in individual situations, not just crowds. There's a woman whose son has died. She's a widow, which means she's pretty hopeless because that was her source of income. That was her source of retirement. That was her son who she loved. And what happens in Luke chapter 7 and verse 13, it says, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. Jesus wasn't thinking about when he lost somebody. He wasn't thinking about when his dad died. He wasn't thinking about all, all his stuff. He was thinking about her and her needs. He was noticing her needs. And then there was one time where he's asked a question. He's asked what the greatest commandment is. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. It's like it. It's the second commandment. To which the guy who asked the question says, well, who do I have to love? He tells a story. It's a real popular story uh, called the Good Samaritan. What we oftentimes don't miss is there were multiple people that saw the needs on the side of the road. They didn't notice them. They saw them. They were religious people. They had places to go. They had things to do. And so they went past those people. But then there was one guy. He was a Samaritan, and he saw and noticed the needs. Luke chapter 10, and verse 33, it says, But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And this guy's beaten and bloody, and it's a bad situation. And when he saw him, then he noticed him. He took pity on him. That wasn't just that he felt sorry for him, by the way. That wasn't like his situation is so much worse than my situation. It's not that. It was, he was moved to the point of wanting to take action. And so that's what he does, verse 34. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. That'd be like giving him medication. And then he put the man on his own donkey, get in, the, get in my car, took him to an inn, and he paid for it. He took care of him. He just noticed the needs and he was moved to do something about it. Now, how different do you think your life would be if you noticed needs in other people's lives? Let's forget like our city and the world and all this stuff. How different would your life be? I had a friend one time who asked me a simple exercise. We were at a basketball game together. We were chatting. And he said, uh, did you ever notice yellow Jeeps? Like yellow Jeeps, kind of a random car. No. no. <laughs> How many do you think there are on the road? Like two? I don't know. I, didn't, I don't have one. I don't know anybody that has one. Yellow Jeeps. He said, next time we talk, just tell me how many yellow Jeeps you've seen. I texted him on the way home. I just saw a yellow Jeep. Like, did you have that guy drive by me? Like, where did that come from? A couple days ago, I was like, there's a yellow Jeep. You know, I just saw was out and about. Just, just a yellow, it's like yellow Jeeps are everywhere. All of a sudden, they've invaded the triangle now that he's mentioned this to me. What's really happened is, now that he's pointed them out, I've noticed them. What if you started to notice needs? How different would your life be? Instead of Jeeps or fire extinguishers or Federal Express logos, what if it was people's real genuine needs? How different would your life be? You know, and we're in Lent right now as a church. You know, this past Wednesday, I sent out an email, talk about Lent, try to explain it for those of you who don't have a background that has anything to do with that. A lot of people will give stuff up for Lent uh, as a time of sacrifice or try new spiritual disciplines. What if we tried this? What if every day, from now until Easter, what if every day we prayed, God, show me a need today? I'm not even saying you meet every need, but what if you just, God, show me a need today? Let me really notice a need today. I dare you. How different would your life be? Because what happens is, you can't just notice needs. Not if you have the Spirit of God living in you. You have to be moved to the point where you want to make a difference in some of those needs. That's what happened for the Good Samaritan. That's what happens with Peter and John. That's what has to happen for us. We must be moved to make a difference. It's not just noticing needs. We must do something about these needs. 
That's what happens in our text with Peter and John. Look at it with me. Verses uh, 4 and 5, he says, you know, look at me, and I'll look at you. What, do, what happens is not that Peter says, hey, do you notice that I notice? All right, you stay here where you can't go, and I'm going here. You know, he does something. Verse 6, he says, silver or gold I do not have. <laughs> um, some people will take this text and use it as an excuse uh, to not meet physical needs and tangible needs and material needs and just go directly to this, you know, the greatest need is the spiritual need. Totally agree with that. Uh, some of you are going to leave and go to lunch today. And uh, let me tell you, if you're going to leave a gospel track and not, not a tip, don't do that, okay? That doesn't mean you're like, I'm going for the real need. No, that means you're cheap, okay? That's, that's all that means. I've been a waiter before. That's what they say about you in the back too, by the way, afterwards. You know, they could take the track and they're like, cheap, another cheap Christian. It's gonna, that's kind of how that works. Don't be that person, okay? That's not what's happening here. Peter and John, actually, if you're going to try and use that text to say this, let me just point out, he heals his legs, okay? So if you're, going to, you're going to do that, then at any rate. But he, he actually meets a physical need. And what's happening here, I believe, is you've got to know the culture to understand this, but Luke is showing us something through the literature of this passage where he's pointing out, remember there are nine gates that are covered with silver and gold. If you put silver and gold on the gate called beautiful, it'd become less valuable. He's saying, I don't have silver and gold. I'm going to give you something more beautiful. I'm going to give you something better than that. It says, silver or gold I do not have, which probably bummed the guy out at first. But then he says to him, what I do have I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then it's interesting to me, the guy doesn't get up. He doesn't have the faith to stand up. We're going to see in verse 16 next week that there's faith involved in this. It's Peter's faith. Because what happens is that Peter then reaches his hand out. He takes the guy by the hand and helps him up. And he helped the guy up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Which he hasn't walked for 40 years. So think about all the miracles God's done here. With his balance, his coordination, legs. Think about how atrophied those muscles would be. All of a sudden the muscles are strong. He doesn't have to be taught to do this. There's not a big process of rehabilitation. Strength goes through the ankles, through his feet. He, be, he jumped to his feet. He began to walk. And he went with him to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And so he never was able to jump as a kid. He doesn't just walk. This guy's running around. He's jumping around. He'll jump up, jump up, and get down here. He's got it going. He, he probably gave him rhythm too, right? The Texans say, he probably had rhythm, you know, at this moment. This guy's dancing, praising God. And then what happens is, is walking and jumping and praising God. And then verse 9, when all the people saw him, because they've all seen him before, walking and praising God, verse 10, they recognized him, they've all seen him before, as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. God did an amazing miracle in this guy's life. Do you know what this miracle is, though? It's not just that a guy is not able to walk, is able to walk. It's a picture of our salvation. We're given new life. This guy's given new life. He can now experience life to the fullest. And you know what happens? He walks. But it's not just the fact that he walks. Notice in the text that where he walks to, he walks with Peter and John into the temple courts. He's never been able to, never been able to walk before. That's amazing, right? I've never been able to jump, never been able to praise. He's never been able to go into this place before either because he was considered unclean. He was considered defective. And what we have here now is a picture of spiritual acceptance that's taken place. And this miracle actually mirrors a miracle that Jesus Christ did in the Gospels. One of my favorite stories, Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5, if you want to read about it. What ends up happening is Jesus is a really popular teacher. He's in a home and he's teaching. And he's so popular, there are a bunch of people that have come. So many people that are in the house that you couldn't get in the house if you showed up. You couldn't even see in the windows. There's so many people that are there. 
And then there was these, these guys, they brought their friend on a mat because he couldn't walk. Four of them. Grown man. And they get there. They came late to the party. When they come late to the party, they couldn't get in, so they couldn't see in. But they knew Jesus was inside, and Jesus was their only hope. And they cared about their friends. They were going to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. That's so what they do is they climb up on the roof of this house. Now think about that. It's a grown man, about 200-pound guy. Climb up on the roof with the guy. They have like a, some pulley system that I'm aware of. Or you don't have the technology that we have today. They go up on top of this roof. They pull the ceiling tiles back. And while Jesus is teaching to this crowd, so Jesus has got a FedEx logo up on the screen, right? No. But he's got their attention. Then all of a sudden this human body gets lowered in front of them. That'd be a distraction, I think, if you were talking about a distraction. And then he says to the guy, as he looks at them, yeah, I see you've got faith. Your sins are forgiven. He meets his greatest need, but he still can't walk. And what happens next is the guys in the front row, there's some religious people there in the front, and they start thinking to themselves, well, only God can forgive sins. Who does this guy think that he is, that he's going to say that he can forgive sins? Then Jesus does my favorite part of the whole passage. He starts to read their minds, because he's Jesus, and starts to talk to them, have a conversation with them about the things they're thinking. Wouldn't that mess with you? Because you're thinking this, let me tell you, what? Like, what are you thinking right now? I can't tell, but Jesus knows. Look what Jesus does. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your heart? Stop thinking, you know, stop thinking, there's no thoughts. And then he starts to address it. Verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Let them think about that for a minute. He addresses them a little bit more. Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The real miracle here is not that I tell this guy to walk. He says, he said to the guy, so he looks at the paralyzed guy now, get up, take your mat, and go home. That's why the guy showed up in the first place, because he wanted to be able to walk. See, it illustrates to us, sometimes we don't even know our, our greatest needs. Sometimes we are so focused on what we want done and how we want it done that all we can think about is stuff that we want to happen. We don't even realize the transformation God wants to do in our lives. Think about a guy, I had a guy come up to me one time out in the lobby of the church a couple years ago now. They go to our church, still goes to our church, but came up to me with tears in his eyes after he was talking about something that said in the message. I can't even remember what I said in the message. It happens to me too, so don't feel guilty. He goes out there, starts talking to me. So he lost his job. Because he lost his job, he said he was having thoughts of taking his own life. So we start talking about this. At that moment, that guy's greatest need in his mind, his prayer request was that he'd get another job. God didn't give him another job. Not for a year. Now when I talk to the guy, he says the best thing that God could have possibly done for him. He says what happened in his life was that God started to show him. His marriage was falling apart. He didn't even realize it because he so idolized this job. It was hanging on by a thread. He didn't even really know his kids. And so the reason why he wanted another job so bad is because he was afraid to do what God actually called him to do, which was to lead his family spiritually. And what God wanted to do in this guy's life was to take him and make him more into the man that he desired for him to be. Now, he obviously provided for his needs. He survived over the year. But he didn't give him the job. Instead, he met a greater need. See, God knew what his real needs were. Sometimes we don't even know what our, our, needs are, our own needs are. This guy, he didn't even know. But then what happens, not only does he get a sense forgiven, and he can walk. Now, this guy has a job now, too, by the way, kind of same, same type of idea. Verse 25, what happens is immediately he stood up in front of them all, walked out, took the mat that he was lying on, goes home praising God. He's probably jumping around, too. And then verse 26, all the people are amazed. They gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we've seen a remarkable thing today. You think? The guy's life was totally changed. What's interesting is what happens next and how it parallels what takes place in this passage of Scripture in Acts chapter 3 is that Jesus goes out. He can call anybody he wants to be his follower. And he picks a guy, 
named Matthew. You've probably heard of this guy. He's a tax collector at the time. One of the most hated people in the world at that time. It'd be like if I stood up and, and told you before the message today, uh, we're going to hire a new pastor. Uh, we're looking for somebody who's in Al-Qaeda right now who's done lots of bad stuff. And that's who he calls, Matthew. He's a fundraiser for terrorists, the Rome, who's killed the Jews and just gone in and taken over. And he calls this guy to come and be one of his 12 closest followers. And then Matthew has a party at his house. And you know who's invited? Other unclean people. That means crippled people. It's all the people who can't go into the temple courts, like this guy in this passage. It's all their tax collectors. It's prostitutes. And the religious people see it. They get offended. And they come, and Jesus gets word that they're offended. So Jesus comes outside the party and starts to talk to them. And he says to them, uh, doctor doesn't come for healthy people. Doctor comes for sick people. I didn't come for righteous people. I came for sinners. You know what he's saying to them? He's saying this. There's a difference between you and these people. And they're like, yeah, we know. That's our problem. He says, that is your problem. See, these people, they know they have a need. You don't. That's what he's saying to them. And when the picture here is, as this guy goes into the temple courts, and all these people are amazed and at wonder, all those people can walk. They're not looking at this thinking, oh, wow, well, maybe Peter and John can help me walk. No, they can all walk. They're inside the temple courts. What they're thinking is, God can do that in that guy's life. Maybe he can meet my needs. Maybe he can forgive my sin. Maybe he can change my marriage. Maybe he can deal with my guilt. Maybe he can heal my wounds. Now, Peter and John explained to them, he can. He does. And he's still doing this stuff. Only now, he's not doing it on earth like he did when he did in the Gospels. Now he's doing Acts chapter 1, verse 1. When Luke started writing, he said this. He said, in my former book, Theophilus, the Gospel of Luke, uh, when I wrote to you, I wrote to you about all the things that Jesus began to do. Implied, he's still continuing to do these things. Only now he's doing them through his followers. His followers that are being so radically transformed by him because they're having regular encounters with him. They're loving one another and they're engaging their world for Christ. They're going to turn the world upside down. What about you? Will you notice the needs and be moved to the point where you desire to make a difference? we got a guy that's a, a believer. He came to Christ in the fall that I followed up with him. He lives in another state now. He's moved. We baptized him here at Southbridge, uh, moved to another state. I was just emailing him to see if he found another group of believers to get connected with, and he has. And he told me, and I think new believers are so challenging sometimes with their, their zeal and their passion. He said what he's doing over the next year is he's trying to do one act of kindness a week. He's trying to do one thing a week that demonstrates the love of Christ. And that was not like some program the church did. It wasn't because somebody told him to. It was just the Spirit prompted him in his heart, and he felt like that was something he should do. He said people were giving him grief about it. People were kind of making fun of him. But he said, I'm, I'm just trying to, try to show people. You know what he has to do is he has to notice a need and then do something to make a difference in that need to that one act of kindness. And then I started thinking, what if we all did that? Like what if our church did that? And then on Sunday morning we'll have somewhere between 750, 850 people. So say 800 people on Sunday morning. I started to think about that. How many people we could impact then I thought, well, just imagine all the kids don't do it, which isn't necessarily true, but just imagine all the kids don't do it and say some of the adults just, ah, whatever, I'm not doing that. So there's 500 of us did that, and we did it for a year. Do you know how many people we could touch? How many needs we could meet? Say we didn't all do it every week. Say we did it 50 weeks a year. I'm going to be legalistic about this thing, but just kind of 50 weeks a year, 500 people, that'd be 25,000 needs that we would try to make a difference in through a year. Not church program, just as we live. And we go to a coffee shop, and, and we go to the post office, and where we work, and the mom's group that we're in, and the friends that we have over for dinner, and, and it's that kind of stuff. 
But then it would cost us something, which is very foreign to American Christianity, even though Jesus says count the cost, and if you don't love me more than you love your parents and family, then in comparison, your love for them will look like hatred, um, and if you don't lose your life, you'll save your life, and all that kind of stuff. We ignore a lot of that stuff. But what would it really cost us, I thought? We have 168 hours a week. It might take us one. (laughs) Maybe not even that, but it would cost something, which would be so foreign to us. And maybe that would be good for us. Just a thought. Noticing the needs and doing something to make a difference in those lives. Let's pray.